All right. Good morning. Excited to be here with you all today. Um, you know, it's kind of crazy. We're, we're almost done here with 1 Samuel. Uh, we got one more chapter to go. It was kind of, it's been one of those things where it's been a little bit never-ending for me. Um, <laughs> just going chapter by chapter and looking, and I finally got to chapter 30, and I looked over, and I was like, oh, it's over next week. Uh, it's kind of sad, but it's kind of been fun for me to sit with David, uh, really to sit with him and really kind of come to know him in a different way uh, throughout this series. I hope it's been the same for you. Uh, but today we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 29 and 30. But before we go there, I want to recap a little bit about what we talked about last week. Uh, last week, if you remember, uh, it was kind of a crazy time for Saul, right? He puts on a disguise and he goes and he's consulting mediums, right? The mediums that he was dr- uh, driving out uh, that he goes to now consult in order to, to find and talk to Samuel. And last week we specifically were talking about weeding through all that, not getting distracted by the kind of craziness of the chapter and really seeing what God might be still talking to us today about, Right? That Saul was consulting mediums instead of consulting God, and we do the exact same thing. We want to have church-adjacent things in our life, right? Church-adjacent, meaning it seems churchy, it seems spiritual, but that's not really what we're pursuing, but we're pursuing ourselves at times, right? We want to get rid of all that, not pursue those things, rather pursue God. And and, and in turn, also, recognizing and asking ourselves the question, do I know God and does God know me? Working from that place, the answer that I hope that we came to is, yes, I do know, I want to know him more, right? I want to pursue God more. I want to stop pursuing the things that might seem like God, but are in reality far from God. So today we're going to jump right in to 1 Samuel chapter uh, 29, uh, verses 1 through 5. The Philistines gathered all their forces. All right, this TV is not on down here, so just give me a second. (laughs) No power. Excellent. That's fine. I can just look up here with you guys. <laughs> Nothing works sometimes, right? Sometimes uh, it just doesn't work the way you want it to. But we're going to be together and it's going to be fine. All right. So verses 1 through 5. The Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek, the Israel camp by the spring of Jezreel. As the Philistines marched, the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands. David and his men were marching at the rear of Kish. The commanders of the Philistines asked, What about these Hebrews? The Kish replied, Is this not David, who was an officer of, the, of Saul, king of Israel? Thank you for doing that. Uh, Saul, king of Israel? Uh, he has already been with me for over a year, and from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. But the Philistines' commanders uh, were angry with the Kish and said, Send the man back that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle. Or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his fighting? How better could he regain his master's favor than by taking the heads of, his own, of our own men? Isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Okay, so this kind of sets the scene as to where David is, right? He's still with the Philistines and he's still kind of working alongside his new pal Kish, right? And he's to the point where he's going to go into battle with the Philistines against Saul's army, right? And so it seems kind of crazy, but don't forget over this time period, reading this, this is like a year and a half. Think about that for a second, a year and a half. Think about the people you've met in a year and a half. It's not just David living in here kind of just 
living and, and doing his life. No, he's probably forming bonds with some of the people he's around. That's what happens over time, right? You are together, you eat together, you might go out and battle together. You're kind of battle-tested with some camaraderie at this point. And so David's going out with these people, and it seems that David's kind of just going along. And it seems odd because we know about David. We know he's the guy who goes out and fights God's battles. He's not really concerned uh, with necessarily, you know, doing the opposite of what God wants him to do. But David's in a weird place right now. But thankfully, David gets a really good uh, piece of news here in, in, in chapter 29, verses 6 and 7. So Akish called David and said to him, As surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable. And I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day you came until today, I have found no fault in you. But the rulers don't approve of you. Now turn back and go in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. This is fantastic news. Before we go any further, I want to point out a couple things here, okay? When we look at how Akish uh, kind of directs this uh, lament, really. It, it sounds like a lament as we read it. Towards David, he, he acknowledges Yahweh before David, right? He says, he says this in verse 6. As surely as the Lord lives, if you were to have a Hebrew translation in front of you, he uses the name of God to David. Now, we could look at this as Akish just being respectful to David. We could say maybe David had some kind of impact on Akish to where Akish might accept Yahweh as another god to be dealt with or maybe to be worshipped in some form or fashion. I don't know. But it is interesting that in this, this conversation, there is this camaraderie, this deep camaraderie between Akish and David to where Akish acknowledges Yahweh. And really, the second thing is that he seems genuinely grieved that David's not going to be fighting alongside of him. Like I said, this kind of furthers the point that this has been a year and a half, day in and day out living together, that can't go unmentioned or unnoticed because there's true relationships being formed here. And what's interesting about this is that if you were to continue reading, David pushes back against what Kish has to say here, right? He's like, no, actually, I want to go. In verse 80 says, but what have I done? David asked, what have you found against your servant from the day I came until now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of the Lord, the king? And again, I want to pause here and say this is so interesting. The Lord's anointed has an out, right? It's like the person who says, actually, i got to cancel plans on you, dude. I, I can't have lunch today. And you didn't really want to go to lunch with that person. And you're like, oh, man, I can't believe we can't have lunch today. Oh, shoot, I guess we'll have to reschedule and like there's that little, little, little bit of joy in your heart that they canceled on you. Maybe that's what's going on here. I don't know. But really when we read this, it seems that there's this grieving process that David has to go through as well. And I don't know if it's like Stockholm Syndrome to where he's gotten to the place where he actually appreciates being among the Philistines. But I think there's something deeper at play here. I think there's this fear maybe in the heart of David that he's been away for so long. Is he even able to come back at this point? Right? Maybe you've had a feeling like that before as well. Where you've been on your Christian walk for some time and you've been far away. And the thought of even coming back to church or the thought of even talking or praying to God at all seems foreign or illogical. That you don't even want to take the first step to going. Even when that first step is given to you on a silver platter, you don't want to go. I think that's what David's wrestling with here a little bit. He's wrestling with this, I've been far away to go back now. I, I don't know what's going to happen. And actually what's going to happen is pretty dramatic. In chapter 30, this is how it begins. 
David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. Okay, we remember the Amalekites. They've been a very, very key enemy this entire time. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and they captured the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, and Anom of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were, take, were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. While David was away, the Amalekites came, right? And if you remember, we've talked about this several times now, the Amalekites was really the big turning point for Saul and his kingship. You remember this. We've talked about it over and over again. But in case you weren't here, remember Saul was directed to bring the Amalekites and destroy them completely. But what does Saul do? Not that, right? He doesn't destroy them completely. He takes back their king. He takes back their plunder, their livestock. And he tries to confuse himself in a way to, to, to um, maybe convince himself in a way that he's doing what God really wanted him to do. But in reality, he didn't, Right? And then we have the Amalekites here once again coming and doing an evil thing against God's people. And so it's gotten to the point now where uh, they've taken these people, they've taken their stuff, they've burned their, their houses or whatever settlement they're in, and now David has to deal with it. All things come full circle, right? And, and it's interesting to think, you know, what would have happened maybe if, the, if Saul would have actually done what God asked him to do. I don't know if that was all the Amalekites, but it definitely was some. I don't know. But it's interesting to see the Amalekites come back and do this evil thing to David and his people. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Good to see you, by the way. Awesome. Absolutely. Um, but the Amalekites come, and it's not good for David. It seems that for whatever reason, they have the information to where... Um, they're able to go, and nobody's been hurt or harmed. Um, but as we get to this point, what I'm trying to say is that this all seems very bleak, right? The people are weeping to the point where they can't weep any longer. They've gotten to the point now where they have to blame somebody, so they're pointing the fingers, and David's afraid that he is going to be stoned. This is not good, okay? But we're going to pause for a second and think about this. Have you ever woken up from a dream? Finally, an answer that everyone can say yes to me to, right? I ask weird questions in here sometimes. But I think all of us have at some point in our lives woken up from a dream. Sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's a really good thing. You wake up and you're, you know, you've done a great thing. You're flying maybe in your dream. Maybe you can breathe underwater. You're doing feats of strength. I don't know what it might be. You wake up and you're like, man, I'm just me again. I can't do any of those things. Sometimes it's a nightmare where you wake up and you're jolted, right? That jolt where you might feel like you're falling or, or something terrible is about to happen, a recurring dream that I have over and over and over again. I'm out in the kayaks with my kids, and an alligator comes and takes away. I don't, I don't want to you know, disturb you guys this morning, but it's a recurring dream. I hate it. Maybe if I say it out loud, it'll never come back again. Uh, but I'm always jolted awake by that, and my heart is racing, and I can't go back to sleep. Have you ever had that experience before? Yeah, everyone, everyone's had that experience, that jolting feeling. 
Sometimes you wish the dream could continue. Sometimes you wish the dream will never happen again. And sometimes you lay there in bed with a cold sweat thinking about how real that dream felt to you and how scary it was to be in that situation. That jolting feeling we're all very familiar with. To me, when David and his men return to Ziklag and they get and they see from a far distance there's, there's burning, their things are gone, their family's gone, to me, that's the jolt that you wish you were waking up from a dream from. It's one of those things where the reality is too sickening to really think about it being reality. You think, I hope this is a bad nightmare that I can soon wake up from. Please, jolt me awake so that this isn't real. But unfortunately for David, this jolt is not from a, a deep sleep, but it's reality. He's not dreaming. The jolt brings kind of awareness, though. Like I said, sometimes in our dreams, uh, they bring awareness to us. Uh, that it, whether it be a good dream or a bad dream, the, the waking up and kind of rationalizing, what did I just live through? Sometimes it can give you great awakening. And to me, a similar experience happened for David in this moment. A similar experience happened to where he was jolted awake. He's living with strangers in a strange land. He's living far away from God. And he comes back and he returns. He's finally back in this place and all this takes place. My question is, what is he going to do now? He's jolted awake, thank goodness, right? Because remember last time David got to a kind of a dead end. We had a sermon about that. The best thing that I can do is, right? Remember that? The best thing for David to do in that situation was to go live with the Philistines. And now he's... He's, he's met with another kind of hopeless situation. He's jolted awake. He, he's facing the reality. Is he going to make another bad decision? Thankfully, that is not the case. Thankfully, we get our guy David back, right? We get the guy that we've come to know and love back here in verses 6b through 8. But David found strength in the Lord his God. If there was music to be playing to soundtrack of David's life, this is a triumphant scene right here. David found strength in the Lord his God. And then David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Abathar brought it to him. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue the raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. He's back, right? This is the reset. This is the renewal of David. In this time period that we've read about David living with the Philistines, this hasn't been taking place. Right? It seems that Abathar, if you guys remember Abathar, Abathar was the last remaining priest that didn't get killed by Doag the Edomite, that somehow escaped that and was with David this entire time. But we don't hear about them at all, really, in the Philistine land. And maybe they were talking together. Maybe they were, you know, having devos or, or whatever together. I don't know what they were doing in the wilderness. Uh, but it seems that at this time, David finally remembers who he is. He's jolted awake from the nightmare of living in this strange land with a strange people far from God. And he finally says, maybe I should talk to God about this. Maybe I should talk to God about this. And along the way, he, he, uh, going from this place, they're going to go find what's been taken from them. And along the way, they find an Egyptian slave who had been with the Amalekites that was discarded because he was a little too sick. And David inquired, said, can you take, take me to where the Amalekites are? And the guy eventually does. 
And David and his men, they go and they fight and they take back what was theirs. Their family members are not killed. They're able to reunite. He's able to have his wives back with him. And things are all fine and dandy. And we can leave the story there and say David is back on God, in God's favor. David is back to being David again. Until I, I, and that could have been a fine sermon, okay? But then I got to this point here in 1 Samuel chapter 30, and this is where I want us to kind of see ourselves in the story. Chapter 30, verses 21 through 25. And this is after what I just said, okay? Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind in the Bezor Valley. They came out to meet David and the men with him. As David and his men approached, he asked them how they were. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, Because they did not go with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. David replied, No, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as, them, as that of him who went down into battle. All will share alike. David made the statute and ordinance for Israel from that day to this. To me, these verses reflect the experience that David had with the Philistines, right? It really reflects everything that he went through. It's kind of the question, do, do you hear how he responded to these people that really kind of just wanted to take what was theirs and the people that didn't contribute don't get anything? Actually, take your kids. We don't want your kids. Take your wives. We don't want your wives. Take them and go. But as far as the plunder goes, we're going to take that because you did not help. You are not part of our people because you did not help fight in this battle. But David hears that, and I think he sees his, new, his whole experience in a different light. I think that he sees what he went through in the land of the Philistines, and he sees, you know what? I was once far away, but yet I experienced great riches, and I, and I experienced all the good things that God gives me. Shouldn't I give that to those who are still my people? I was far off. I did not seem like the Lord's anointed whatsoever, but yet God still loves me, and God still blesses me. Of course you're going to have your share of the plunder, right? Of course that's going to take place. Hear what David says in verse 24. All will share alike. David finally maybe gets this lesson to where the grace of God is so overwhelming. The, the grace he experienced when he was far away from God is kind of radiating out of his being. To the point where he's received all this grace, he has to give it to other people. There's no other option because he recognizes just how far away he was from God when he was living with the Philistines. And now he's back. He's the David that we know and love. And he has to experience and show God's favor to everybody. And we can say, you know what, this is just great leadership. You know, maybe he's trying to, you know, curry favor for the future by giving other people. Leaders do this all the time. If you talk, you talk about any leader, you know, they start out by giving everybody a little bit of something. So everybody likes them just a little bit. But to me, this is not a leadership strategy by David. This is a life strategy. This is what he's doing because he's trying to act like the father that he's worshiping. He's trying to emulate the father's actions of giving grace by giving to others. He realizes that for a while he seemed to be lost, but God never lost sight of him ever. Right? We talk about wilderness. 
Most of David's experience that we've read so far has been in wilderness. Talk about not being seen. Every single day you're hoping to not be seen by one in particular person. And you're going further and further in the wilderness. You're not able to be in a normal place, in a normal situation. You might have been in, 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 as the king of Israel, right? But God never lost sight of him. He was always seen and he receives grace and he gives it back to everybody he encounters. And really this is kind of a theme that we see stretching throughout the entire New Testament, right? This theme of giving grace that is not necessarily warranted to be given. Right? We talk about the prodigal son, the prodigal son who experiences this, you know, very, very large amount of wealth all at once, right? And he goes off into the wilderness and he comes back and the father receives him nonetheless. Even though he's spoiled all of these riches, God still receives him and the father still receives him. We talk about Matthew chapter 20. We talk about these workers in the vineyard. Remember this parable in Matthew chapter 20? When there's these workers that go work in the vineyard, and there's a guy that works there all day, there's a guy that works there half the day, there's a guy that works there just a little bit of the day, and guess what the owner of the vineyard does? He pays them the same exact thing, right? And the guy who's been there the entire day says, that's not fair. Should I get more? He's excited, right? He's like, man, these guys are getting the same thing. I'm going to get more probably. And the owner of the vineyard is like, what do you mean? This is my vineyard. This is my money. I'm going to give it out how I see fit. And the owner of the vineyard gives it to everybody because everyone's deserving of what he says they are deserving of. And I think of the unmerciful servant in, in chapter 18 of Matthew, actually, as well, where we have this servant who's been forgiven a debt, right? You remember this? Nod your heads if you're with me. He's been forgiven a debt, but when that servant goes out, he's wanting to collect a debt that is much smaller than the one that he owed to his, his, to his master, right? And the master is like, dude, you got it all twisted here. Do you not remember the debt that I, that I forgave of you, and you're not going to forgive the debt of, an, of another person? We have this identity, this, this idea stretched out the entire book of, of the entire scripture. Every single book has this, right? Every single book has this measure of grace, like, all over the place. But to me, we could go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, all these things, but it really culminates here by Paul's words in Romans chapter 12. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. All of this idea of grace, all this idea of being giving grace and giving grace to other people, this is kind of the starting point for it all. We have to renew our minds. We have to reset the way we actually think and move about the world. Because this world is not a graceful place. If we have these two people between David and Saul, we see Saul as the person who is not giving grace, but he is taking and taking and taking as much grace from God as he possibly can take. Or we have David who is consistently doling out grace where they, other people don't deserve it. Right? We have these two people who are experiencing the same world but in very different ways. Right, they see things in a completely different ways. And really, I love this term right here, sober judgment, allowing your mind to be unbothered, really, by the way of the world. 
to see yourself with sober judgment in accordance to the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Renewing your mind, allowing yourself to see the way things actually are. See, these words make David's actions logical. David's actions of saying, all will share alike, are made very logical by these statements because this is the reality. And David is just experiencing it. David is experiencing the grace of God and he's giving it to others. So I go back to this idea of waking up from your dreams. And I think about David and I think about the situation that he was in and how he came out of it. I think about all the things, the New Testament scriptures we talked about and and Paul here. And really what I think that we're all asleep to at times is the amount of grace that we actually receive. I think sometimes we're asleep to what's going on around us And this allows sin to have a lot of power in our lives. Are we asleep to the grace that we receive on a daily basis? Are we asleep to the things that God sees and God recognizes and still loves us through? Are we asleep to the fact that we are separating ourselves from God every time we step deeper and deeper into sin? The question is, how can we wake up and take power over our sin? How can we wake up into the reality of the world with sober-minded judgment to renew and reset our minds to be geared toward what God is giving into our lives, the grace that God is giving into our lives? The very first thing that I think that we should do is to give grace abundantly. Can we say that together? Give grace abundantly. Because if we are not giving grace, then have we really received grace? If we are not giving grace, have we actually experienced the grace that God has given us? Because you give what you receive. You cannot give what you do not receive. But guess what? Everybody in the world, whether they know it or not, has received grace from God. No matter if they acknowledge it or not, they have received grace. Everybody in here is acknowledging, yes, that is true. Then how come we don't look sometimes a lot better than the world does? at giving grace. There's a whole lot of people in the world that are not Christians that are giving grace more abundantly than we are. And it's frustrating to me because this should be the banner that we live under, right? The forgiveness. We should be living under this idea that we are not the masters of our own being, but we serve a master who is far greater than us, who has given us grace so that we can give it to other people. And, I, and I, this word abundantly, it, it kind of, I want, I want you to see in your mind a, a cup that you filled up to the top and you can see like the little bubble, the surface tension is still there. And then I want you to take another cup and keep pouring it on there so that that cup keeps overflowing. Brenda talks about this all the time. I don't want to call her out, but she always talks about her, her life. She, her cup is, is filled and overflowing. I love that. That's how we should all be living our lives. Recognizing the grace that is literally overflowing from us that, to the point where we can't hold it anymore. Please take some of this grace I've been given. Please take some of this grace I've been giving and keep giving it. That's how you stop letting sin have control in your life. The second thing is a little bit more personal. Check and see if you are overdue for a renewal of your mind. I know that's corny, okay? I had to do it. Overdue, renew your books, library. There's a joke in there somewhere. I promise. But check and see if you're overdue for a renewal of mind. What do I mean by that? Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 12. Okay? I just got to go there real quick. In Romans 12, 
He says it like this. And we just read this, but I want to just continually remind ourselves. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, that's an important word, okay? Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. It seems to me that if we do not renew our minds, we're not going to be able to see where God is pointing us in our lives. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. I wish Paul could have been there for Saul. That's weird, right? Rhyming. Um, But rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Again, if we look at David and Saul, there's an obvious one who is sober-minded. There's one that's obviously not sober-minded, right? My question is, are you sober-minded this morning? Are there things in your life that are distracting you from being sober-minded? Are there things in your life that you're saying, there's no possible way for me to get out of this, therefore I am going to do whatever I think I need to do at this point. I don't care what God has to say about my life at this time. I think if you're in that place, the prayer that you need to pray this morning is to help me renew my mind. Help me to reset Help me to wake up that jolting awakeness that you have from a bad dream and allow God to, to be there as you process through these emotions. Allow that jolt to be, make you more aware than you've ever been before. And, and it's, it's hard to pray that prayer because awareness often brings action, and sometimes we don't want action. Sometimes we want to just sit where we're at and just kind of be there. But I want to encourage you that if you truly want to know God and if you truly want to seek his will, you must renew your mind. And if you truly want sin to have less of a control in your life, you need to renew your mind. Give grace, renew your mind, and see what God's going to do because it's going to be radically different than what you could do on your own. Let's pray. God, I thank you for being able to uh, do great things uh, through very ordinary people. Uh, where David is just a man, uh, but the thing that makes him more than a man is that he relies on you. Even when he's in the wilderness, even when he has these t- periods of time where we're not so sure about his decision-making, his heart is always postured towards your will. Help us to emulate that. Help us to recognize that we are just men and women and that we sometimes go through wilderness experiences. And sometimes those wilderness experiences, they grow us and mature us, but sometimes those wilderness experiences just seem like really that we're far from you and there's nothing that we can do about it. God, this morning, help us to recognize the amount of grace that we've been given. And God, we recognize we can't even quantify that really, but help us to see that that infinite grace means that we need to be giving it to the world too. And God, help us to recognize that sometimes we need to renew our minds even when we don't think we need to. Help us to recognize that we need to be more sober-minded to see what you are directing us to do in our lives. And if there's anybody in here that's, that's wondering, how do I do that? I pray that you're able to just make it obvious to them. Make it obvious to me as well, God. Not just to people who may be unaware, but help it to be obvious. Sometimes we, we, we need that. God, please be with us as we, as we pursue your will and try to live into that grace you give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If there's anybody here that is kind of in that boat where you're not sure what to do, if you feel like you need a renewing in your life,
My prayer is that you seek somebody out today. My prayer is that you, if you want to come forward, we invite you at this time to come forward. But talk to somebody today. Renew your mind. Give somebody some grace as we stand and sing.